Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. You know, in the movies, the ones about big, bad moments in presidential history, the Oval Office, it's it's dark. There's ominous music playing. Everybody's got this grimace on their face. So I want you to listen to this. It reads as if it's taken from one of those screenplays. Quote, the evening of January 5th, the day before the formal certification process, Donald Trump met with Mike Pence. He urged Pence as the presiding officer at the certification session to throw Biden's electors out. Pence said he didn't have the power. Quote, what if these people say you do, Trump asked. He gestured outside where a massive crowd of his supporters had gathered. Their cheering, their bullhorns could be heard through the Oval Office windows. I wouldn't want any one person to have that authority, Pence said. But wouldn't it almost be cool to have that power, asked the president of the United States. No, Pence said. I'm just there to open the envelopes. You don't understand, Mike. You can do this. I don't want to be your friend anymore if you don't do this. Trump's voice became louder and he grew threatening. You've betrayed us. I made you. You were nothing, he said. Your career is over. If you do this cut, because that's where the director would yell cut if this were a scene from a movie. But it's not. It happened. It's June 6th today. It's been a year and a half since January 6th. In that time, the contours of what have happened, uh, what happened have become fairly clear. After the president of the United States lost re-election, he and his supporters launched a full-scale, multi-pronged effort to overturn the legitimate results of that election, one that culminated with a violent attack on the Capitol. We've gotten a pretty granular understanding of it, too. We know that sitting members of Congress were in on the plot. We know that the president's daughter witnessed her dad try to pressure the vice president, Mike Pence, to stop the official counting of the ballot. Heck, thanks to that original reporting that I just read to you from, from Bob uh, Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, we even know that the president threatened to stop being Mike Pence's friend, for whatever that's worth. I'm totally not going to be your friend anymore, Mike, if you don't throw the election my way. We're just two days away from the the beginning of the January 6th public portion of the hearings, where investigators will lay out the results of the congressional inquiry into what happened and into who is ultimately responsible. And yet, we're still learning new details about the lead-up to what was almost the successful overthrow of American democracy. The first piece of information today has to do with this. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. 
That was right before the mob of supporters descended on the Capitol on January 6th, appearing to be following orders from the president to march down to the Capitol, along with a promise that the president himself would march down there alongside them. A lot of scrutiny has been placed on this part of the president's speech. It gets to the key question of whether or not Trump incited rally attendees to march to the Capitol. Trump and his allies have tried to downplay those remarks as some kind of off-the-cuff slip that Trump didn't really mean that he wanted to march to the Capitol with his supporters to disrupt the certification of the election. Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, says it was a complete surprise when he heard those words come out of his boss's mouth. Well, today we got concrete confirmation that Trump's direction to sick his supporters on Congress was not an unplanned ad lib, but something he had been planning for weeks. According to new reporting in The Washington Post today, Trump had been pressuring the Secret Service for weeks to come up with a plan for him to safely march with his supporters to the Capitol on January 6th. The Post reports that the January 6th, on January 6th, Trump, quote, well, Secret Service agents scrambled to try to secure a motorcade route so then-President Donald Trump could accompany his supporters as they marched on Congress to demand that he stay in power, end quote. The D.C. police tells the Post that the Secret Service that day went as far as to ask the police for their help with setting up a safe route to the Capitol for the president. D.C. police told Secret Service agents it was not possible. So the idea was ultimately scrapped. Today, Politico reports that the January 6th investigation has interviewed the head of Trump's Secret Service detail. He was with Trump backstage at the rally on January 6th, as well as in the motorcade with the president, presumably his testimony will shed some light on this discrepancy. It also points to the fact that the January 6th investigation's focus on the Secret Service has sharpened considerably. Not just on Donald Trump's security, but on the vice president's protection as well. Recent reporting in the New York Times revealed that just 24 hours before the attack on the Capitol, Mike Pence's chief of staff contacted the vice president's head Secret Service agent to tell him that, quote, the president was going to turn publicly against the vice president, and there could be a security risk to Pence because of it. Following weeks of an intense pressure campaign led by the president to bully Pence into refusing to certify the election results on January 6th, Pence's chief of staff thought the president's supporters might descend to violence if Pence didn't abide by the president's demands. And of course, he was ultimately right. 24 hours later, Trump supporters were demanding that Mike Pence be hanged for failing to overturn the election for Trump. Pence did have to be whisked away from the Capitol by the Secret Service, narrowly avoiding an encounter with the rioters. And of course, we now know that Trump not only provoked those ralliers to hunt down Mike Pence that day, he even sympathized with them in real time. Donald Trump reportedly told his chief of staff that he approved of the hang Mike Pence chance that day. The pressure campaign against Mike Pence, the bullying he endured by Trump and his allies to defy the will of the voters stacked together, it starts to create a picture of a president desperate to stay in power and who was willing to pull any lever available to make that happen. Especially when you add this new and overlooked detail. According to the New York Times, in addition to berating Mike Pence to his face, to get him to block the certification of the election results, Trump was also trying to blackmail him behind the scenes. The Times reports that Trump's chief of staff told Pence's team 
that the White House was withholding money that Pence needed in order to set up his post-White House office. Put plainly, until you do what I want, you do not get your money. And as we approach the start of the public hearings on Thursday, consider the witness list here. Trump's efforts to overturn the election, even if you just focus on the Mike Pence aspect of it all, the list of people who were a party to this behavior is long. There are the advisors to Mike Pence who were on the receiving end of that pressure campaign, the staffers to Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows, who witnessed their boss dole out that pressure on Donald Trump's behalf. According to The Washington Post, All of those people are expected to deliver testimony at the live hearings that begin on Thursday. Mark Short, the vice president's chief of staff, the vice president's chief lawyer, Greg Jacob, as well as a top aide to Mark Meadows named Cassidy Hutchinson. They're all expected to deliver testimony during the live hearings. And apparently invitations are still in the mail. The Post reports that the former attorney general, Jeff Rosen, and other Justice Department officials are expected to receive formal invitations to testify in the coming days. You thought you knew the whole story. Still stuff coming out. Less than two days until the witnesses start appearing in prime time. What should we expect? Joining us now is the Virginia Congresswoman and member of the January 6th committee, Elaine Luria. Congresswoman, thank you for being with us. Uh, The Washington Post and the New York Times are reporting that you and Congressman Adam Kinzinger will together lead the final hearing, which is going to focus on Donald Trump and his actions leading up to and during the riot. I want to understand what you're hoping to show the American people in that presentation that they, they either don't already know or haven't been willing to hear. Well, uh, as you led into our interview here, you described just the depth and the breadth and the number of people involved in what was a widespread and far-reaching conspiracy to essentially uh, overturn the results of the election. And what we hope to tell um, through our series of hearings, uh, which will start this Thursday, is, you know, just how deep that was and how dangerous it was, dangerous it remains to the future of our country and our our democratic institutions. Um, As we've all seen, uh, you know, some of that uh, cast of characters that you mentioned, including the former president himself, are still out there. They're still out there spreading these lies, uh, trying to claim that the election was stolen. And so, you know, in my mind, the forces that led to the events on January 6th, they they still exist. They still present a danger. And I think that the the work of our committee, the things that we will present, will really lay that out uh, for the American public. And so let's accept that as a given, that the forces still exist, that all the things that some Americans are with a with a, you know, a, a sigh of relief are thinking are in the rearview mirror all exist. Some of them may have actually strengthened. The issue here is, do anti-democratic forces just exist in America? Or is there a a, a possibly still active plot by people who looked at what happened on January 6th, saw the failures, and could try and repeat this sort of thing again? It is entirely possible uh, that, you know, some group could attempt to repeat something like this again. I think there's a saying about, you know, the, the commonality between every successful coup is that there was a failed coup, an attempt before. So I think that it's really important uh, that we understand all the factors that led to this. And, you know, the work of this committee is truly to um, 
provide uh, all of the things that led up to January 6th, the full accounting of that, the events of that day, and provide legislative recommendations to prevent something like this from happening in the future. So I think that that is the ultimate uh, product of the work of this committee that will occur after these hearings, um, because we really do need to make sure that we safeguard our democratic institutions and we don't allow the possibility uh, for someone to look at the events of January 6th and say, well, next time, if we did this Mm -hmm. differently, perhaps we could be successful. Obviously, coming up with these legislative suggestions would be helpful in in establishing some of those guardrails for democracy. But there's also culpability. And I know that's not the mission uh, of your committee to deal with people who were responsible for it. But what's the chain of events? Is, Is the hope that when you lay out your findings and your report that the Justice Department or others who can actually deal with the people who were responsible for it more than they already have will do more? Um, well, I, I think I was clear in one of our earlier proceedings from the committee, um, you know, I really want to, to lean in um, on that parallel investigation that's happening with the Department of Justice. Um, they are the ones who truly will hold people accountable for criminal actions. Uh, the report from this committee, the information that we put out within hearings, um, I think will paint a very clear picture from beginning to end to the present day of all the things that happened that led up to this, the dangers that still exist. And, you know, some of that information will clearly be new to the public um, and perhaps new to others who are also looking carefully at these events. Uh, we we have reports that the committee is in discussions with various Trump administration witnesses, like the former uh, White House counsel, Pat, Pat Cipollini, as well as the chief of staff and the chief counsel to the former vice president. How important is it that these people provide their testimony in public. You seem to have a lot of the information anyway before people even testify because you've corroborated it um, at different points. But what's the importance of those people testifying in front of the public? Well, I think it's very important um, that the American people hear directly uh, from people who have firsthand knowledge of the events uh, that the committee is investigating. Um, so as we roll out the hearings and get closer to each hearing, we will you know, let the public know um, who will be uh, participating in each of those hearings. uh, There are some Americans for whom this is in the rearview mirror. Lots of other things have happened since. Is it your sense that that holding some of these hearings in public in prime time with key testimony and evidence will be enough to remind people that that democracy itself is at stake? It was put at risk that day and, and continues to be at risk. It is something I would say that, you know, if you walk up to someone on the street or if I talk to someone in my district, it's perhaps not the first thing Mm -hmm. that comes to their mind. Uh, People are very busy. They have a lot of challenges in their daily life. Uh, But when you talk to them, when you engage them about this, about the events of January 6th, I think the number one thing is that people express horror, disdain for what happened. Um, And I truly think no one wants to see something like that happen again. And I think that the committee's ability to have interviewed a thousand people, um, to have collected over 140,000 documents, to bring all of this information together, to present it in a way where the American public can see from beginning to end, all of the elements, all of the pieces of this picture come together. I, I think people will really look at it and say, this is serious um, and that they are glad um, that they were able to understand this more fully. Thank you for your time tonight, Virginia Congresswoman and member of the January 6th committee, Elaine Luria. We appreciate it. All right, we've got a lot to get to on what has turned out to be a very busy news night. Still ahead, I'm going to speak with Senator Chris Murphy. He's the Democrat who is leading the bipartisan negotiations on gun reform. It's also 
a huge primary night in states across the country. We'll get the latest from Steve Kornacki, who's at the big board. And up next, new indications that the Justice Department's parallel investigations that we were just talking to into January 6th are beginning uh, beginning to heat up. Like I said, lots to get to. Stay with us. The International Rescue Committee is a critical organization working in more than 50 countries, responding to the world's worst humanitarian crises. The IRC serves people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. Responding within 72 hours after an emergency strikes, they stay as long as needed. Right now, in places like Afghanistan and Ukraine, families are experiencing adverse winter weather like heavy rain, frigid temperatures, and snowfall on top of war, hunger, and displacement. Many makeshift camps are unable to withstand extreme weather conditions. Some people are living without reliable electricity, while others can't afford to buy fuel for the heat source they do have. Donations help the IRC provide families with the resources they need to recover and rebuild their lives, including essential winter items like emergency food, shelter, fuel, medicine, blankets, winter gear, and cash assistance. For example, even just a $14 donation can provide a temporary shelter for a displaced family. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. A few months after Attorney General Merrick Garland vowed that his department would hold all January 6th perpetrators at any level accountable under law, we're starting to see more indications that the DOJ's investigation is gathering steam. Yesterday, five members of the Proud Boys, including its leader, were indicted on seditious conspiracy. It's a charge that, as Rachel pointed out last night, is rarely brought by the Justice Department because it's so difficult to prove. Typically speaking, the department would only bring those cases if they knew they could uh, follow through on them. That followed the indictment of 11 members of the Oath Keepers militia on the same seditious conspiracy charge earlier this year. There are also reports that the DOJ is stepping up its criminal inquiry into another focal point of the plot to overturn the 2020 election. Fake electors. These are the Trump supporters in seven states won by Biden who signed documents sent to Congress and the National Archives claiming to be the real electors in each of those states. And that was an operation that was directed by the Trump campaign. The Washington Post reports that the Justice Department has now issued subpoenas to and conducted interviews with some of those in Georgia who were connected to the scheme, which backs up recent reporting from CNN that federal investigators had interviewed people related to the plot in at least two states, Georgia and Michigan. We're also learning new details about the clandestine nature of the scheme. The Post now reports that Trump's election operations director for Georgia sent an email telling the 16 Republicans who signed their names as electors, they were fake electors in that state, to be discreet about it. Quote, your duties are imperative to ensure the end result, a win in Georgia for President Trump. But it will be hampered unless we have complete secrecy and discretion, end quote. He also tells them in bold, quote, please at no point should you mention anything to do with presidential electors or speak to the media, end quote. Which is kind of weird because this whole thing about elections is supposed to be done uh, out in public. We know for a fact that part of the message went unheeded, or at least that part did, because people did talk. Those fake electors in Georgia allowed a local news station's cameras in to film them as they signed certificates declaring themselves the rightful electors. They now have to worry about their own criminal liability. But what are these new revelations about the campaign's desire for complete secrecy 
mean for the campaign and those overseeing the plot? What's their liability? Does this does this come back to bite them? Joining us now is Barbara McQuaid. She's the former United States attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. She is now a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Uh, Barbara, good to see you, my friend. Thank you for taking time to be here tonight, because this is one of those questions that those of us not trained in the law don't know how to think about. Like, what, what, what does it mean that there's now more and more connection between the organizers, the fake electors, and even messaging that, su- uh, that suggests, shh, don't, don't talk about this out loud? I think it's a very interesting development, Ellie, and I think it is uh, heartening to see that the Justice Department is looking at this part of the plot, because this is part of the core of what John Eastman was urging Donald Trump and Mike Pence to do. Part of throwing out the real electors required having these alternate slates of electors to vote for Donald Trump, and they needed to be in place before January 6th. The fact that they're done secretly, I think, is uh, especially important. You know, in prosecution circles, we refer to this as consciousness of guilt. If what you're doing is legitimate, then there's no reason to cover it up. But if you do things secretly, it suggests that you know that there's something wrong about it. I could imagine a defense here being, we were just providing provisional ballots. We knew there were some irregularities in in the, the election. And so just in case we were filling these things out, that might be one defense. But if you have someone saying you have to be secret about it and you can't tell anybody what's going on. In fact, I think they even said you have to do this at the Capitol. But when you arrive, lie and tell them that you're there to see your senator or something, because otherwise they won't let you in. That suggests to me that there is something uh, you know, foul about what's going on here. And it may be that these people who signed these slates, the actual electors, are just sort of pawns in this whole thing, doing what they're told to do. Where I think the Justice Department's investigation really should focus and likely is focusing is who gave these directives and why, and keep following that up and up and up to who was the author of this instruction. Does it come all the way back to John Eastman and those who were planning uh, these these plans in the Oval Office? Will that make a difference? If you if you go higher and higher and higher and you find out that it, 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 it what many of us guessed to be the case, that this was orchestrated at very high levels, what what what's the import of of making that determination? Well, I think ultimately, if you could put together all of this, that this was a plot to defraud the American public about the outcome of the election and disrupt the results, disrupt the peaceful transfer of power, then you could charge a crime called conspiracy to defraud the United States. It is essentially uh, using fraudulent intent to prevent the proper functioning of government. And so here, the proper functioning of government would be to certify the votes as they were cast across the country. Instead, if there was a plot here to try to get Mike Pence to throw out the legitimate electors and instead use these alternate slates of electors, it would be a way of flipping the outcome of the election illegitimately. So there's a potential crime there if you can put the pieces together. I want to ask you about the indictment of these five proud boys on this seditious conspiracy charge. You're one of the rare prosecutors who've actually brought seditious conspiracy charges. What does the DOJ's decision to charge members of the proud boys with seditious conspiracy, in addition to the 11 members of the Oath Keepers, uh, what does that what does that tell you? This is a very serious charge, Ellie. They had already been charged with another crime of conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. And that brings with it a 20-year sentence, just like the seditious conspiracy charge. And so, in many ways, uh, they could have simply left things as they stand and still facing considerable amount of time. But seditious conspiracy 
it requires proof of something far more serious. It requires the use of force to oppose the authority of the United States government. That's much more than going in and disrupting a government proceeding. Using force to oppose the authority of the United States, it really is the closest thing we have to a charge of treason during times of peace. The treason statute can only be used when we are at war for someone who provides aid and comfort to the enemy. But this one brings with it a connotation of disloyalty to the United States. So it's a very serious crime, but I think it's appropriate in a case where you want to bring the moral condemnation on people who have actually tried to overturn the United States government. It was a wise decision to ask you these questions. Barbara, always good to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Barbara McQuaid is the former United States attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. As always, we appreciate your time. Well, in the wake of the Uvalde school shooting, is a breakthrough on gun reform possible? Senator Chris Murphy, the Democrat who's leading the negotiations in the Senate with Republicans, says he's, quote, more confident than ever that Congress can strike a deal. He joins us next. Stay with us, please. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. People in power have failed to act. So we're asking you, and I'm asking you, will you please ask yourselves, can both sides rise above? Can both sides see beyond the political problem at hand and admit that we have a life preservation problem on our hands? Because we've got a chance right now to reach for and to grasp a higher ground above our political affiliations. A chance to make a choice that does more than protect your party. A chance to make a choice that protects our country now and for the next generation. We've got to take a sober, humble, and honest look in the mirror and rebrand ourselves based on what we truly value. Actor and Uvalde, Texas native Matthew McConaughey made a pitch for new gun laws during today's White House press briefing. Those remarks came just shortly after he met with President Biden to discuss the issue. McConaughey called on members of Congress to do something to set aside partisan division on guns and to protect the country from the repeated acts of gun violence that we are experiencing. He urged action while he remembered the lives and aspirations of the 19 children and two teachers who were shot dead in a Uvalde classroom two weeks ago today. Children like Javier Lopez and Annabel Rodriguez, 10-year-olds, whose families held funeral services for them today. Two weeks after the shooting, there are still two patients being treated at a San Antonio hospital. The shooter's grandmother, who is said to be in stable condition, and a 10-year-old girl who remains in critical condition. This is where things stand for the victims and the survivors of the shooting at Robb Elementary School as of today. Meanwhile, members of Congress are still trying to act. 
A bipartisan group of senators has been meeting since the end of May trying to figure out what they can put in a gun reform bill that could get the 60 votes needed to overcome the filibuster. Today, President Biden met with the Democratic leader of those negotiations, Connecticut, Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy. Yesterday, the senator met with the Republican Senator John Cornyn of Texas and with Kristen Sinema, a Democratic senator from Arizona, for more than two hours. But in terms of what will be any eventual bill, we know that there are some compromises on the table. Earlier today, Senator Murphy pledged to, quote, not let perfect be the enemy of the good, end quote. Now, here's the thing. In terms of timing, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said today he's giving the negotiators until the end of this week to make a deal. So what does that final product look like? At this point, what is actually possible on guns? Joining us now is Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, leading the bipartisan negotiations on gun reform in the Senate. Senator Murphy, thank you for being with us tonight. Thanks for having me. We are... 14 years out from D.C. versus Heller. We're 18 years out from the end of the uh, assault weapons ban. And you've got to the end of the week to bridge gaps that are that big. What is possible? Well, I mean, let's go back even further. It's been 30 years since Congress has passed you know, any comprehensive legislation addressing gun violence in this country. Um, and there's a reason for that. This is you know, the most politically complicated, emotionally fraught issue that Congress deals with. And it's been often very easy for both sides to just retreat to their corner, to, for Democrats to say, unless we get everything we want, we're not interested in compromise, for Republicans to say we're interested in doing nothing. Um, this moment does feel different. Um, and I think it feels different because the public out there, parents and kids are really scared. They're really scared. And they are making it clear to my colleagues that doing nothing is just not an option this time around. What are we talking about? Um, well, I mean, I'm being careful not to sure. negotiate in public, yeah. but um, it's been broadly reported, right, that we're talking about um, helping states pass and implement red flag laws, that we're talking about uh, improving our background check system. We're talking about a big investment in mental health. We're talking about trying to zero in on these 18 to 21 year olds um, that seem to be doing most of the mass killing and trying to make sure that we um, be very careful about getting guns into the hands of the wrong people before they're ready. Um, so and there's a handful of other issues that are on the table right now. But we're trying to put together a, a bipartisan package that saves lives, doesn't do everything I would like, but um, shows that we can break the 30-year logjam on doing something meaningful on gun violence. You're from Connecticut. So when you say this time feels different, I remember Sandy Hook felt different. Parkland felt different. Um, how do you how do you get the every one of these mass shootings at a school has dug people further into their positions? This has got to be an emotional conversation when you're in there with John Cornyn and others. How do you get past that to do exactly what you just said, what Matthew McConaughey said? Everybody just get past themselves for a little while so that we can do something to to rebrand what we are. This is America's brand. It's a lousy brand, but it's America's brand now that people shoot up schools. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it, it, it compromises our nation's security because it frankly causes a lot of other nations to, you know, stand off from the United States because, you know, they don't believe we share the same values. I mean, if America really cared about human life, why would we do nothing year after year of uh, gun violence rates that are 20 times higher than the rest of the uh, high income world? Um, I think what I learned after Sandy Hook is that, you know, this, this town, Washington, 
and is about political power. And the anti-gun violence movement really had very little mm -hmm. in 2012. We've spent the last 10 years building up a movement, and we now have um, you know, more people who are calling offices demanding change um, than we've ever had before, and that that ultimately makes a difference. So I think that's the difference between now and 10 years ago, is that we just have a movement, a movement of citizens that is making a difference. You mentioned uh, red flag laws, for instance, and it's been reported that the group is currently a little bit stuck on some of this stuff. It, it, it has worked. In, in many states, it's been bipartisan to have red flag laws. People have said, all right, you know what, if you're not going to randomly take away uh, the guns of law-abiding citizens, but there's a process by which those who might be deemed a risk to themselves or others can have a hearing and it can be fair, even Republicans can get behind that. Where are you on that? Because that does seem to be something that could move some of the needles on, on, uh, on some of these shootings. And, and by the way, on the things that actually kill most Americans, which are people who kill themselves with a gun. So I think that's really important, right? Because when you hear that number of 100, 120 people dying every day from gunshots, um, two thirds of that is suicides, right? And, and we have a growing suicide epidemic in this country. Red flag, red flag laws are primarily used to stop suicides very successfully. And you're right. There are lots of pretty red states in which red flag laws have been implemented and implemented successfully. Republicans in Florida passed a red flag law that's been used 5,000 times since um, it was passed. Now, if I'm a gun owner, you know, that, that, that tells me that you know, it's not being abused only 5,000 times given the tens of millions of Florida residents, but that's 5,000 interventions mm -hmm. uh, that probably saved hundreds, if not thousands of lives. I think we're going to get there on red flag laws. Um, I know there's some reservations from Republican colleagues about due process. I think we can answer those, um, but I think we'll be able to help states implement them. We'll be able to put money behind it, and it will end up saving a lot of lives, preventing a lot of suicides. You spoke to the president today. Uh, what's his role in this? I thought the speech he gave um, was incredibly powerful. There's no better moral authority on this question of violence in America than Joe Biden. And of course, he speaks from a, a perspective of knowing what loss feels like. Um, I think he also understands as a former senator that sometimes the Senate has to work out its own issues. And so he has been very generous to give us the room and the space to negotiate our own compromise. Obviously, he's got to sign it in the end. So I wanted to go over to the White House and tell him that, uh, where we are in the negotiations. But uh, I think his, his bully pulpit, his moral force is incredibly important, but he's smart enough, having been in the Senate, to know that this is one that the Senate probably has to work out ourselves. Senator, are you, are you enthusiastic or are you frustrated right now? <laughs> I mean, I'm frustrated and heartbroken every single day. I, 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 every single day I wanted to have passed this bill yesterday. Um, I feel like this is different. I know that there's 19 ways that this can fail and one way that it can succeed, but every single day, we're still on the path of success. And so I wake up every day optimistic that we can get this done, but I also know that there's a reason why it's been 30 years since we've passed anything significant in this space. This one's as hard as anything that we deal with, but maybe, maybe, um, because of what people out there are doing, because of the phone calls that they are making and that I hope they will make tomorrow to their members of Congress, this time will be different. So that's what you want people to do. You're, you're, you're hoping that more people will call their members of Congress and senators and say, please get a deal, get this done, do something. 
I mean, this, that's, that's what this place is all about. I mean, that's the miracle of democracy, right? Is that, you know, in the end, members of Congress make decisions based on what they think is going to be best for their state and what's going to help get them reelected. And a lot of members of Congress here have made the bet in the past that they could sit on the sidelines of these negotiations and, you know, pay no political price. And, yeah. you know, I, I, this isn't about elections to me. It's not. It's right now just about getting this deal. But, you know, we just need over the next few days, especially um, a real avalanche of people who care about change, who care about compromise mm-hmm. and progress um, to let people know that we need to get this done. And that doesn't matter what side of the issue you're on. I think we're all on the same side of we don't want more school shootings. Senator, thanks for your hard work. Um, thanks to those uh, who are with you on this, uh, members of both parties who are looking to change things. Senator Chris Marf- uh, Murphy is the Democrat who is leading the bipartisan negotiations on gun reform in the Senate. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Well, on top of all the other news tonight, there are primaries underway right now in seven states. We've got the latest with the great Steve Kornacki right after the break. Republicans tried to block it, but the voters passed it anyway. In Missouri, it won with 53 percent of the vote. In Oklahoma, it won with 50 percent of the vote. In Nebraska, it was 53 percent of the vote. In Maine, it was 59 percent of the vote. In Utah, it was 53 percent of the vote. In Idaho. 60% of the vote. In all of those states, a majority of voters chose to expand Medicaid, to give health care to thousands of people, tens of thousands, really, who did not have access to health care before. Ever since the Affordable Care Act went into effect, Republican-controlled states have been fighting to stop the expansion of Medicaid, which was really the biggest part of the Affordable Care Act. But almost every time activists managed to get Medicaid expansion on the ballot at the state level, It won. A majority of voters, not a plurality, a majority of voters chose to expand Medicaid. Tonight, candidates will face off in primary races across seven states. We're going to have more on those races in just a moment. But I want to shine a light on how this issue is playing out in South Dakota. It's an issue that has not received as much attention as it should have. This November, South Dakota will be one of the latest states where voters will get to decide whether or not they want to expand Medicaid. Now, if passed as precedent, it would mean that Medicaid expansion has a good chance of becoming law in South Dakota this November, which is why South Dakota Republicans decided to try something different. Republicans in South Dakota could not take Medicaid expansion off the ballot. So instead, they took the unusual step of adding another ballot measure to the much lower turnout primary election today. One that would make it harder for voters to pass the Medicaid expansion on their own in November. The measure on the ballot today, if passed, would raise the threshold needed to pass Medicaid expansion in November. So instead of a simple majority of votes being needed to pass Medicaid expansion in November, it would now, if this goes through, have to win with 60 percent of the vote in order to become law. Why 60 percent, you ask? Let's put up a graphic that I showed you before I uh, when I talked about this in the six states that have expanded Medicaid expansion at the ballot box. Five of them did it with less than 60 percent of the vote. Idaho passed Medicaid expansion with just barely more than 60 percent of the vote. One of the things we're watching for tonight and into tomorrow is whether Republicans in South Dakota will succeed in raising the threshold, making it harder to pass Medicaid expansion 
this November. But as I mentioned, there are several big primary races taking place in seven, seven states across the country today. For more on those races, let's go to MSNBC's Steve Kornacki at the big board. Steve, good to see you again, my friend. What races are you following tonight? And what do we have in terms of results? Yeah, we're getting some pretty surprising results here so far, Ali. Actually, you see seven states voting Mississippi right now, providing the biggest drama. There are two Republican primaries with Republican incumbent members of Congress who both at this hour are in some real jeopardy. One of them is right here. This is the third district of Mississippi. I'm just going to have to write these out for you. But the incumbent is Michael Guest. And currently, and this is with more than a quarter of the vote counted, he's receiving 45% of the vote. His challenger, one of his two challengers, Michael Cassidy, is receiving 47%. So Guest is trailing Cassidy with more than a quarter of the vote in. Why would Guest be in trouble in this district? Guest, the only Republican from Mississippi who voted in favor of establishing a bipartisan January 6th commission. That has been an issue in this campaign that has given an opening on his right to Cassidy. Cassidy, a veteran who is now, as again, as we say here, with a little bit more than the quarter of the vote in, is leading guest at this point. Now, there is still a lot of vote to come. There are some areas of the district friendly to guest that we haven't seen any vote from yet. And I should note in Mississippi, the requirement is here, 50 percent. Ah. Yeah, I got to get 50 percent or it goes to a runoff. So if this ends up in a situation like you're looking at right now, this would be runoff territory between Cassidy and Guest. But Guest right now is in some real trouble. There's also and I, I could just tell you this. I apologize. We don't have a results board for this. But in the fourth district of Mississippi, this is southern Mississippi, a long serving Republican incumbent. His name is Stephen Palazzo. He's come under fire ethics allegations against him about the misuse of campaign funds, misuse of of, of, uh, congressional staff. He's facing a slew of challengers. And with even more of the votes counted, Palazzo is only at 31 percent right now. So facing a strong possibility of a runoff for him, a big indication of discontent with Republican voters in the fourth district of Mississippi with Palazzo, given the votes that we're seeing. He's been there 12 years right now. So two incumbents in Mississippi at this hour, Allie, are in trouble. That's where the drama is right now. All right. Later on, there's going to be drama in California and Montana. We don't have those numbers in yet. What can you tell us about those? Yeah, well, later on, we're going to be looking at, uh, go back to this later on, California obviously is going to take center stage, uh, and that will be, let's, uh, oh, and I should point out one other here. We mentioned this is the uh, the at-large congressional seat in South Dakota. This is Dusty Johnson, Republican incumbent. He also voted for that independent bipartisan January 6th Mm -hmm. commission. You see, he is leading his challenger. This is a state legislator who he's against here. We've not called this race. There are some other Republicans here in South Dakota, John Thune, the governor, Christy Nome, they're both closer to 75, 80 percent. So Johnson is being held to a lower number, though he is leading with about a quarter of the vote in. But it is going to be later on tonight, 11 o'clock Eastern time. That's when the polls are going to close in California. And obviously the drama will begin there. Let's just call California up on the screen. Uh, not much drama there in the gubernatorial race, I call. Gavin Newsom survived his recall last year. But it is in San Francisco where you've got the recall of Chesa Boudin. 
the, the uh, district attorney who ran on that progressive platform. This the most liberal city, probably in California, one of the most liberal cities in the country. Are, are we going to see Chesa Boudin, the district attorney? Are we going to see him recalled the way it works in California? So many of these mail in ballots have been coming in. They're ready to go. They can report them out pretty quickly, probably in that 11 p.m. to midnight hour. We're going to get a big batch of votes out of San Francisco. We may know Chesa Boudin's fate very quickly. If it's a lopsided election at all, if he's thrown out by a wide margin, we could know that quickly. And obviously the other thing we're going to get, I think a lot of votes pretty early in that 11 o'clock hour is the mayor's race in Los Angeles here. Karen Bass, the congresswoman, Rick Caruso, uh, a billionaire businessman who's running, uh, who's been running surprisingly well, self-funding his campaign here. We'll see if they head to a runoff together, but we're watching that one closely. We'll be with you all night, Steve. Thank you, my friend, MSNBC, Steve Kornacki. We'll be right back. There are USB-A chargers, there are USB-B chargers, there are USB-C chargers, there are micro USB chargers, there are mini USB chargers, there are lightning charges, there are MagSafe chargers, there are literally dozens of different sizes and shapes for quote-unquote standard power adapters. It is truly madness. And if you live in this century, you likely already know what I just told you. I would bet you good money you've got a drawer somewhere in your house where you keep the old chargers just in case they might end up being useful. And I would bet you haven't opened that drawer in a while. But this does not have to be the way we live. Today, the European Union reached an agreement that will require all new smartphones, tablets, headphones, and cameras, all portable electronic devices, to use one common charger by 2024. Laptops, which are a bit trickier because they use more power, will also have to be on that one common charger by 2026. And the charger that won out is the fast-charging USB-C cable, which is a personal favorite of mine. The EU estimates that this legislation will save consumers across the pond 250 million euros a year and cut down on about 1,000 tons of waste a year. But also, just think of how nice it would be if your tablet and your e-reader and your camera and your laptop and any other portable device you had all used the same charger. A better future is possible. That does it for us tonight. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.